Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, recorded December 3rd, 2021, titled, The Universe Began, Therefore Virgin Birth, Lee Strobel Case for Christmas Response. Someone once asked famous talk show host Larry King who he would choose to interview if he could interview anyone in history. And his response was quick. He said, Jesus Christ. I tried to dig up video for this, but it seems the interview Strobel is referring to was in 1990 with something called People Magazine. Before the advent of the World Wide Web, and long before YouTube, some of my older viewers may remember that magazines were like blogs, but they printed them on paper and sent them to medical waiting rooms so that all the sick people could touch common objects. His questioner asked, well, what would you ask him? And King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin-born. Wait, you'd ask Jesus if he was virgin-born? No human is a reliable witness about their own conception, and most of us are thankful to be spared the knowledge. We're just a single cell at that point, devoid of sensory input or be in a position to know. You'd need to ask Mary. But short of a lasso of truth, I'd still be suspicious. Apparently, she stuck to her story like no girl in history. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. And welcome to part three of our investigation into Lee Strobel's four-part Case for Christmas. If you want to check it out from the beginning, tap on the playlist above my head and you'll be set. Well, King is right. If Jesus of Nazareth were born of a virgin, then that would really change everything, wouldn't it? Because it would be strong confirmation of his identity as a unique son of God. But of course, Jesus isn't physically here to ask him about it. And besides, how could anyone prove that their conception was virginal? Yes, this gets into some strange and unsavory territory. Let him showtime. Even DNA tests could prove only that Joseph wasn't the father, not who the father actually was. I mean, unless God was willing to provide a cheek swab for comparison. In a different interview, Larry King was asked what question he might have for God. Larry astutely said, do you have a son and who is he? Assuming a God who cannot lie, this answer would settle the Jesus lineage far more conclusively than the question to the son. It's interesting to note that an impressive 79% of Americans believe that the virgin birth took place. This number seems to come from a 2003 study by Newsweek, also a magazine. Pew Research Center usually has the best data on this kind of thing. In 2013, they reported that 73% of Americans believe in the virgin birth. By just 2017, that dropped to 66%. They don't have an update since, and we obviously don't conclude what is true by taking a survey of people's opinions. 
but these numbers are not heading in Strobel's direction. Unlike the resurrection, where we have eyewitnesses and an empty tomb. Do we, though? I have a playlist examining the evidence for the resurrection. And, spoiler alert, we have no first-hand eyewitnesses at all, and plenty of reasons to suspect that Jesus was never even placed in a tomb, let alone left one behind. We can't marshal that same kind of facts to prove that a virgin birth took place. Virgin birth has even less evidence. Great. But here's what we can do. We can see if the virgin birth makes sense, both theologically and scientifically. Theologically and scientifically, it would make sense that Joseph Smith translated golden plates. Theologically and scientifically, it would make sense that the Archangel Gabriel delivered revelation from God to the Prophet Muhammad in a cave. Theologically and scientifically, it would make sense that Zenu dropped paralyzed bodies into active volcanoes. I hope you get the point, this isn't a great way to determine the historicity of events. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip over Lee's sermon on the theological imports of the virgin birth. First, it makes it possible for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. Second, the virgin birth makes it possible for Christ to be born without original sin. So, there are good theological reasons for the virgin birth. And since there are important theological requirements at stake, one can imagine all the more reason for Christians to have invented the story as a way to elevate Jesus' status. Now, some critics maintain that the virgin birth is a mere story that was invented by Christians many years after Jesus' death as a way to elevate his status. But the evidence contradicts that. Oh? What evidence could that be? Actually, the reports of the virgin birth are quite early. In fact, within the first generation of Christians. Oh, I see. Lee inserted the many years qualifier into the objection, and now, if he can be the arbitrator of what many years means, then to his audience he will have somehow disproven legendary development. You may recall from part one that time isn't a factor here, the way that Lee purports it to be. But for now, let's see where this goes. Matthew and Luke both talk about the virgin birth in their Gospels. And as we saw in our last session, these Gospels themselves come quite quickly after Jesus' death. Luke within 30 years or so, and Matthew also within that first generation. Last week, I produced a video for Vice Rhino's channel, in part on the gospel timeline put forth by non-scholar apologists Lee Strobel and his friend Jay Warner Wallace, which I'd encourage you to check out to support Rhino's channel this month. But in short, here's evangelical Christian historian Mike Lacona to set the table here. How do we know? Let's look at a little timeline here, and we can see that it, most scholars believe that Jesus was crucified and died in either April of 30 or April of 33. doesn't matter which one, one of those two. They also agree that the, the Gospels were written somewhere between the years 65 and 95, or approximately 35 to 65 years after Jesus' death. Now, some scholars, like Dennis, will place one or more of the Gospels a little bit later. Some scholars will place some, one or more of the Gospels a little bit earlier than that. But by far, the majority of critical scholars today put them in this at these dates. And remember how we noticed similarities and some differences in the account of Jesus' birth in Matthew and Luke? More differences than similarities. Some of the same characters. Oh, use the force. 
That's not how the force works. This indicates that the two of them were drawing on even earlier and independent sources. When we study how many times Mary and Joseph are mentioned in each gospel, we find that Luke's account is essentially based on Mary's perspective. In fact, he may very well have interviewed Mary or her friends before he wrote his gospel. Or he may very well have simply drawn on the legends that had arisen in the decades that had passed, but skewed it towards the Mary-centric ones. Or he may very well have invented the unique details found in Luke, purely from his own imagination. My scenarios are no more speculative than Lee's. The New Testament scholar Richard Baucom argues that the material that's unique to Luke may have come from Joanna or Susanna, both of whom Luke mentions in Luke 8 verse 3 and 24 verse 10, and who undoubtedly knew Mary. What Baucom argues in his 2002 book, Gospel Women, is a form of the six degrees of separation game between Mary, mother of Jesus, and the author of Luke. In Luke 24.10, Mary is with a woman named Joanna. On the other side of the chain, Christians like Lee think that the author of Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. And in his letter to the Romans, Paul asks them to say hi to a woman named Junia. Now this chain may seem incomplete, but what if Joanna and Junia were really the same person? While Joanna and Junia are not translations of the same name, the way that Jesus is a translation of Yeshua, or Joshua, apparently Joanna and Junia sound close enough for Bacham to express his speculation. Now, this baby will be related to Michael through delusion. Not exactly solid. As for Matthew, his account is based on Joseph's perspective. Even though Joseph apparently died before Jesus' public ministry began, he probably passed along his story to his children. I'm not convinced that's the case. Parents often spare children the details of family scandals or try to protect them from feeling different. The conception story of your sibling isn't something you want to hear at the best of times. And we know that Matthew and James, who was a half-brother of Jesus, were both early leaders of the church in Jerusalem. So... Matthew might very well have heard Joseph's perspective of the birth of Jesus from James. Or, again, may well have heard it from legends developed in the early Christian community. Or may well have just made them up. All plausible. In any event, the story of the virgin birth predates both the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And that means it wasn't some later legend. That doesn't follow. Predating the Gospels doesn't protect the virgin birth story from being a legend. Fake news can arise and take hold very quickly. And for this, we're talking decades of time. But is the virgin birth scientifically plausible? Scientifically plausible? I mentioned in The Case for Christmas the story of Dr. William Lane Craig, a philosopher who originally thought the idea of the virgin birth was absurd. Why? Because women lack the genetic material necessary to create a male child. So for Mary to give birth to a son it would have necessitated the creation of a Y chromosome out of nothing in Mary's ovum. Okay, so if Jesus had been a girl, then William Lane Craig thinks the virgin birth would not be absurd? In recent years, we've had the emergence of the self-cloning creeps crayfish, carrying an all-female mutation that it continually produces its own fertilized eggs. 
which developed into exact clones of the mother. With such rapid reproduction, this clone species has become quite an ecological problem in areas where it has taken hold. Now classified as Procamberus phallax, it was once called Procamberus virginalis. Is that what Dr. Craig meant? If Mary had mutated to produce her own fertilized eggs, then he would have bought into the science of the story? Dr. Craig went on to earn two doctorates and... To talk about me on podcasts. He, he was had a brain-dead Christian faith. ...become a leading proponent of what is called the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God. This argument consists of three points. Oh boy, here we go. I have a number of videos on my channel about the problems with the Kalam cosmological argument including this recent one with Dr. James Fodor. So we won't go into depth here, but it'll be interesting to see how this relates to Christmas. First, it says that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, ask yourself, can you think of anything that began to exist that doesn't have a cause behind it? No. Even the famous skeptic David Hume said, I have never asserted so absurd a proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. It's my understanding that earlier versions of cosmological arguments used a first premise more along the lines of everything that exists has a cause. The problem is that God exists and would therefore require a cause. Everything that begins to exist is the apologist's way around needing special pleading for God. But the trouble here is that many cosmologists hold that matter in the form of energy, or some other elementary material, did not begin to exist in the temporal sense we would understand. This same loophole exemption for God also lets the cosmos escape. Second, scientists now agree that our universe began to exist at some point in the past. Correct. Scientists agree that our particular instantiation of space-time began to exist at the Big Bang. Now, scientists disagree somewhat on what was before the Big Bang, perhaps a singularity like the sitcom song advocates. Our whole universe was in a hot, dense state. And there isn't even certainty in what sense before the Big Bang is a coherent notion. All that to say that our particular universe having a beginning says nothing about the material cosmos having a beginning. Alexander Vilenkin, who's the director of the Institute of Cosmology at Tufts University, said, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. Right. Our particular instantiation of space-time isn't past eternal. There is no escape, he said. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Oops. Lee went off the rails here, equivocating between our universe and the cosmos. Our universe being temporal doesn't mean that the larger material cosmos had a beginning in this sense. So, if whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist at some point in the past, therefore, point three, there must be a cause behind the universe. And now Lee has equivocated back from cosmos to universe. I know that some apologists want to defend a Kalam that uses cosmos throughout, but Strobel isn't one of them. He's being slippery in order to appeal to science in one point and ignore it elsewhere. Now, think about it for a moment. What kind of a cause would be capable of bringing a universe into existence? Well, since it seems energy, or quantum particles, or something material seems to exist outside of our universe, 
Then something material could be capable of causing our universe. Well, he must be powerful, given the incredible immensity of the creation event. Whoa, whoa. Hold on there, Lee. Why are you assuming that the cause is a he? This is another equivocation. And by labeling it a creation event, you're presuming up front that something was created. When that's what you're trying to prove, that's called begging the question, assuming your conclusion. He must be smart given the mind-blowing precision of that event. We don't have time now for a full fine-tuning discussion in response to this sentence fragment from Lee. But suffice to say that we don't know that other configurations are possible, given the brute properties of matter. And if other configurations are possible, how that would work. What shouldn't surprise us is that we exist in a universe that allows for us to exist. Existing in a universe that doesn't allow for us would be the real surprise. See my videos on fine-tuning or the puddle analogy for more. He must be immaterial or spirit because he existed before anything physical existed. Cosmologists generally agree that physical things existed before the Big Bang. Again, in whatever sense, before time is coherent. If Lee wanted to go back to the cosmos, that's fine. But then we're in the realm of assuming brute facts. I'd assume energy. Lee would assume God. Since we know energy exists, by Occam's razor, I have fewer assumptions. He must be timeless or eternal because physical time didn't even come to an existence until the creation. Well, that's partially right. The cause of our timeline would need to also exist outside of our timeline in some sense. That doesn't infer timeless or eternal, of course, just outside of our time. And the continued use of he and creation continues to beg Lee's question. He must be personal because he had to make the decision to create. He must be caring because he so carefully crafted a habitat where we can flourish. That's just silly. There's no requirement for an active decision. And a personal creator could easily wish to create in order to inflict torture or be entirely indifferent. Doesn't need to be caring. So, powerful, smart, spirit, eternal, personal, caring, unique. I mean, that's a pretty good description of the God of the Bible. So Dr. Craig's conclusion, and mine as well, is that Genesis 1-1 should be regarded as scientifically accurate when it says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Though Dr. Craig's new book puts forth that Genesis 1-11 to shouldn't be taken as literal. It's interesting to see him clash with apologists like Lee these days. And all of this helped Dr. Craig accept the virgin birth of Jesus. How? Well, he explained it this way. If I really do believe in a God who created the universe, then for him to create a Y chromosome would be child's play. And on this, we finally have some agreement. If a god created the universe from scratch, then impregnating a woman would be trivial for such a being. The only reason to doubt the possibility of the miracle itself would be a prior commitment to philosophical naturalism. That is, the belief that the material world is all that exists and that there is no such thing as God or supernatural intervention. I don't need to hold to philosophical naturalism to doubt miracles in general, or a specific miracle in particular. Many religions have miracle claims that Christians doubt. I'm guessing that Strobel here doubts that Muhammad flew to heaven on a winged horse, despite believing that miracles are possible. All one needs for doubt is a lack of evidence. 
not a hard commitment to philosophical naturalism. Sufficient evidence will convince me. And I was hoping this series would have it. If one, however, acknowledges the existence of a God powerful enough to create all that exists, there remains no reason to doubt that such a God could intervene in history in this supernatural kind of way. I agree. Sadly, I can't acknowledge anything that I'm not convinced of. One step at a time. This is indeed the God who is presupposed on every page of the Bible. Presupposition is to assume something before the evidence is presented. This is not the kind of thinking Lee Strobel advertises when he touts himself as an investigative journalist who is swayed by evidence. Now he's advocating for assuming that God exists so that the rest of it seems plausible. This is having a conclusion and then looking for data to support it rather than being led to a conclusion by the evidence. This kind of reasoning would have got him fired as a journalist, but apparently makes him hugely successful as a Christian apologist. Or maybe Strobel is saving all the really good evidence for part four of the case for Christmas. If a God exists who is big enough to create the universe in all its complexity and vastness, why should a mere miracle be such a mental stretch? Even a miracle like Christmas. And with that, this is probably a good time to remind you of the Dr. Bart Ehrman Did Christmas Really Happen? four-session seminar happening live on December 5th. If you go to tinyurl.com slash Bartmas, that's B-A-R-T-M-A-S, listed in the description, you can attend live, but also have permanent access to replays of the whole thing after the fact, making it a great Christmas gift for someone in your life who could use some skepticism from a world-renowned scholar. And by using this link, you'll also be directly supporting my channel. So thank you. If our final episode of our Case for Christmas series is up, you'll see the thumbnail on screen now. So give it a tap, and I'll see you over there. Happy Solstice! Later. Later.